Hello and welcome to Messages at BBC. In these messages, you'll hear from professors, staff, guest speakers, as well as students. These messages were spoken and recorded on campus at Boise Bible College. If you'd like to check out Boise Bible College, please see our website at boisebible.edu. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Lord, some of us today are mourning, and some of us today feel very comfortable. We invite you into our hearts, into the places where we feel most weak, most vulnerable, most sinful, most terrified, most complacent, most apathetic most comfortable. Has anyone else felt like the Beatitudes are absolutely impossible? (laughs) Beautiful, but impossible, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit. It almost feels like these are the New Testament's Ten Commandments or Eight Commandments, right? It's really easy to treat them like that. Instead of seeing the word blessed who mourn, we sometimes just read, mourn, do it, be comforted. We can see this as a mandate, something we must do. We are so reward-driven in our culture, aren't we? We see the word comfort, ooh, and we start salivating. How do I get that, right? If only I can mourn, so let's bring up the tears. Mm, if I can just cry and mourn, mm, comfort me, yes. Mm. And we, we put on this fake facade pretending that we're living up to the Beatitudes. No pain, no gain, right? Is this how Jesus meant for us to read the Beatitudes? Is Jesus saying, blessed are those who mourn because mourning makes us virtuous, so we get a reward for being virtuous? Or is Jesus possibly saying, blessed are those who mourn because God is gracious? And he's acting to deliver us from our sorrows. Despite our cultural conditioning that wants to do it ourselves and pull us up by our bootstraps, we can frame these beatitudes in two ways. One, by means of works-based self-righteousness, or as a means, or as a guarantee of God's grace. That when we fail to mourn, Even if we're failing to mourn right now in our brokenness, in our culture's brokenness, that God's grace is sufficient. Because the first, the workspace righteousness produces guilt. But the second option, seeing the Beatitudes as God's grace upon us, gives us liberation. It sets us free. God's grace is sufficient enough to have hope in because he has the ability to make all things new and all things right. Yes, there are those who mourn who are Christians and who know Jesus personally, but there are many who mourn that don't know Jesus at all. And when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he means yes, all of us. Not just the chosen few, not just the in crowd, all of us. 
Because Jesus mourns for all of us. He mourns with all of us. And he even mourns against all of us because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The blessing that comes is not from the act of mourning, it's from the grace, the love, the mercy of Jesus who promises to comfort us when we mourn, if we even allow ourselves to mourn. And we also wanna challenge this idea of blessing, blessed. So often we throw this word around, hashtag blessed, right? We throw it around with, without even thinking about what it really means. Well, I'm so blessed by the salad today. I'm so blessed that I got uh, a cherry on top of my sundae. I'm so blessed that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, whatever it is. But Jesus knew exactly what he meant when he said this word blessed. Because in the Greek language, there are two words for blessed. And one that the ancients used to mean uh, God's gift to us or a benediction from God. This is often how we use the word blessed. But what Jesus was saying here is makarios, the Greek word for blessed that means you just received a fortunate and happy circumstance that, re that re deserves a congratulations. That's the kind of blessed that Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying makarios to those who mourn. And you might think of it this way, okay? Um, we might use Makarios as like, okay, I'm 15 weeks pregnant with my first baby. Makarios, right? That's a fortunate and good circumstance that deserves a congratulations. Or some of you might be graduating by the end of this year. Makarios, blessed are you who's about to graduate Bible college, right? Or blessed are you who just won the lottery. What a fortunate and happy circumstance you just fell into, right? Deserves a congratulations. That's the kind of blessing Jesus is talking about here. So when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, he's literally saying, congratulations for mourning. You did it. And not in a sarcastic, passive-aggressive way, like congrats, you have a heart after all. It's not like that. Jesus is being serious. He's like, congratulations, you're mourning. And you will be comforted. He is literally suggesting that to mourn or to be poor in spirit, or to be a peacemaker, or any of these other beatitudes, he's literally saying, you just stepped into a supremely fortunate and happy situation that deserves a huzzah. Now, if your humanity is paying attention right now, you'll probably be perking up in dismay, annoyance, or confusion at the absurdity of Jesus' statement right there, right? Because he literally just said, happy are the unhappy. This does not compute. <laughs> Did you notice that? <laughs> okay? Usually when people are mourning, we don't put our party hats on and pull out the kazoos and say, congratulations, your heart's broken, you're miserable, you deserve a congratulations right now. That's not how we operate. Right? And in fact, if we actually did that to someone, we'd probably never be friends with that person again because they'd hate our guts, right? Or we would be deemed as some sort of monster on social media. How dare you congratulate my suffering? Like, but Jesus is literally, that's what he is suggesting right here. And this is especially the case when there's some of us in our society who are suffering from homelessness or trauma or war, exploitation, oppression, and injustice. 
How can we possibly say congratulations? You're mourning. What is Jesus getting at here? What kind of mourning even solicits such a blessing? Two kinds. Grief, when you've lost something you love very dearly. Or repentance, when you are so utterly grieved by your own sin or even the sin in this world that you're weeping and broken because you'd rather have God than have the junk. See, God takes mourning very seriously because Jesus himself mourned. We see the deep grief in Jesus when he looks upon Mary and Martha's face after his brother, their brother Lazarus just died and he's deeply moved in his spirit and troubled and he weeps because he just lost a best friend. We see Jesus weep over Jerusalem, saying, oh, that, would that you, even you, had on this day the things that make for peace, but they were hidden from your eyes. And soon and very soon, your enemies are gonna barricade you up, Jerusalem. They're gonna barricade you up, tear you to the ground, even your women, your children inside will die. And Jesus is weeping because he knows that this is going to happen. And Jesus weeps again over Jerusalem saying, you are the city that kills prophets and stones those who God gives to it. I wish, I wish that you would just gather yourselves underneath my wings so that I could protect you and guide you, but you don't want it. You're not willing. And Jesus is weeping over the sin of this holy city. To mourn is to walk in Jesus' footsteps. To mourn is to feel the grieving weight of sin on your heart. To mourn is to lament the evil and the suffering in this world. To mourn is to experience heartbreak beyond belief. To mourn is to see reality as it is, not as you want it to be. To mourn is to feel as Christ feels and to see as Christ sees because Christ sees the brokenhearted and he is brokenhearted by it. In fact, God's holy judgment has even burned against those who refuse to mourn the ruin in this world. The prophet Amos wrote about this in chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. He said, Woe, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on comfy couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of a harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Woe. Woe. In some regards, Amos could be writing to our culture right now. He could be writing to the Christian church right now. Woe. 
Let us not be those people who recline on comfy couches and stuff our ears with idle music because we don't want to see the evil in our midst or in ourselves. Woe to that kind of posture. So we're breaking down, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So far, we've learned that the Beatitudes are more about God's grace than they are about our self-righteousness. That the word blessed, makarios, means a happy situation worthy of congratulations. And that thirdly, God takes mourning very seriously. So when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, what in heaven's name is he getting at? How can we put all these pieces together and make sense of what Jesus is saying? The key is Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. Jesus, when he is saying these beatitudes, he is thinking of Isaiah 61. And we know he's thinking of Isaiah 61 because he quotes Isaiah 61 for himself as an identity statement. And hopefully it rings familiar in your ears. This is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, and they shall build up the ruined cities, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Hopefully you've recognized this as the passage Jesus reads when he's in the synagogue at Nazareth, his hometown, that turns out to hate him later, and he reads this passage and he tells them, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. He just claimed this passage as him. I am God's anointed, the Messiah. That's what he is saying right there. And dead center at all of this is to comfort all who mourn and to comfort them with the promises of restoration, to give them the oil of gladness and a headdress instead of ashes and crying and tears. So this passage in Isaiah Let's unpack it a little bit more. Beyond this passage, thousands of years ago, when it was first written, God's people were mourning their home. They were crying out because they were in an exile in Babylon due to their own sin. And God is here promising to end their mourning, to comfort them. And he's promising that a season of loss is going to end soon, and I am going to restore the ruins in your life. I will bring restoration. That's what verse 4 is all about. But also this text is invoking the ancient concept of jubilee, which is found in Leviticus 25. 
And this concept, this jubilee, means liberation from landlessness, slavery, and debt. Jubilee here, as invoked in the Isaiah passage, looks to the past, present, and future. It looks to the past for the importance of restoring Judean society. It looks to the present moment in Isaiah's time to rescue the people from Babylon. But it also looks to the future of Christ, because Christ himself claims this passage as his own, bringing a new kingdom that will give God's people a new spiritual land, released from the slavery of sin, and the payment for the debt of our transgressions. So when Jesus stands up at Nazareth and he reads this, he is saying, I am the one who comforts all who mourn, and I can comfort all who mourn. To illustrate that Jesus is anointed to bring good news, to bind up brokenheartedness, to proclaim liberty and comfort to those who mourn, I want to read two parallel passages in Luke 7. They're both in Luke 7. The first is Luke 7, 11, <clears throat> and the next is Luke 36. Let's start with Luke 7, 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nan, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who died was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and his mother was a widow. And there was a considerable crowd from the town around her. And when the Lord Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her. But he said to her, don't weep. And then he came up and he touched the briar and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And let's just jump right into the next story. This is right in uh, verse 36. And one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come over to his house, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city, a sinner, learned that Jesus was reclining at this Pharisee's table and she brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind Jesus' feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of sort of woman is touching him, that she's the sinner. And I'm going to skip down to verse 44. And Jesus turned to this woman and he said to Simon, that Pharisee, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wipes it with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with this ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. And so he said to the woman, 
your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Back to back, almost back to back, we have two stories of two women who are mourning. One mourning in grief the loss of her beloved son and she has no one else. Her only family member just gone and she's weeping. And the other one, a woman who's so sinful she has no other choice but to be at Jesus' feet crying her eyes out because she's so repentant and grieved by her sin. And Jesus looks upon both of these women who are mourning for different reasons and he has compassion on them. Both of these women, Jesus comforts and not just by hollow words, by saying, there, there, you'll feel better soon. He comforts them by restoring what was lost to them. For the widow, he restores her son to life and to the sinner, he restores her dignity by forgiving her and giving her peace. When the Apostle John looks in his vision in Revelation chapter 21, he sees the new heaven and the new earth, and he hears Christ saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. That is the promise that Jesus is declaring when he says, those who mourn will be comforted. Whether in this life or the life to come, they will be comforted. That is a guarantee. So Jesus promised to heal us from our suffering, but notice that he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, not blessed are those who are comfortable for they will never mourn. That is a lie that oftentimes the church is perpetuated in feel-goodery wanting to placate the, the pain, wanting to placate the mourning in our society, not wanting to hear, wanting, wanting to remain ignorant to all of that. Hashtag blessed, right? No. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who mourn. Sometimes God allows our comfort to be disrupted so that we can be blessed by the mourning. Because Jesus desires to wipe our tears away. He desires to cradle us in his arms. He desires us to feel his comforting love. And sometimes we will only let him do that if we are broken. Because let's be honest, when we're feeling comfortable with ourselves, God, you can stay over there. Whatever you have in mind, that's eh, too uncomfortable for me. I'm happy where I am. And so God says, you made your choice. And he allows things to happen. Not that he sends things to happen necessarily, but sometimes he allows things to happen just to wake you up. Because he wants you to mourn so that you can know how good he is and how comforting he is, how near he is. This simple verse, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Jesus is pulling from the Old Testament past as we've seen in, in Isaiah and he's pointing to the heaven bound future like we kind of briefly mentioned in Revelation but he's doing this for the present moment and not just his first century present moment but our present moment. 
Remember, if we read this blessing as a framework of God's grace rather than our self-righteousness, we don't need to earn anything. We don't need to do anything to earn the comfort. Mourning will happen to us. We don't need to go finding it and forcing ourselves to weep fake tears and making us feel so bad about ourselves for no reason. We need to have open eyes. That's all. To acknowledge the reality as it is, rather than stuffing our ears and closing our eyes and pretending like this doesn't, nothing bad exists. Bad things will happen to you. Heartbreak will happen to you. Death will happen to you. This is reality. You don't need to go seeking it out. All you need to do is open your ears and your eyes and look around, even in just some neighbors down the street who are crying out because they don't feel heard. And they don't feel loved. And they don't feel safe. Where's our compassion? If we just open up our eyes and ears, the morning will come. How can it not? But if we keep stuffing our eyes and our ears with messages of hashtag blessed, we'll never mourn. And then we'll never know Christ's true heart. But when your heart is utterly broken because of the evil in this world, because the horrible things do happen to innocent people, because your sin has bullied you and tormented you long enough, you will be comforted. You will be, as a guarantee. And you will be blessed in that. When we surrender ourselves to Jesus, weeping because of our sin that's grieving us, weeping because of the injustice, the sin in this world, weeping because we long for Jesus to make all things new, Jesus in his grace will start peeling back those ugly layers of superficial, self-centered, comfortable living. And he'll usher us into real life, genuine realism, not a fake optimism. He'll start showing us reality for what it really is, and he'll, he'll be with us in that place, showing us how to grieve and mourn like he has grieved and mourned ever since we disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. He has been grieving for a very long time. And it doesn't take much to see that. Become aware of the sin in you that has been screaming at you, bullying you around, and you've just been too comfortable to want to see it or hear it. Jesus has been seeing it and has been grieving him because he wants to transform all of you he wants to give all of you comfort, all of you new life, all of you freedom. I want to quote C.S. Lewis. He, he offers a poignant rebuke in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward that God offers to us, the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our Sinful desires, not strong, but weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when God has offered us infinite joy. Sometimes we're like ignorant children 
who just want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't even fathom what a holiday in heaven would even look like. We are far too easily pleased. Let's not be pleased with, our, with ignorance. Let's not be pleased with a fake optimism. Let's not be pleased with any of these things that will stifle the mourning that is within us. Because if you're getting close to the heart of God, you'll mourn. It'll just come. It'll be there. Because st stifling ourselves doesn't help with the mourning. Rather, let's allow, let's allow the terrible weight of our sin and the world's sin to force the tears out of our eyes because we're just realizing the reality of what God has known all along and what God is doing to fix it. There's the comfort. It's not just sitting in the morning and throwing ourselves the pity party that, oh, this world is so broken, it so sucks, I, can't, I don't want to be here anymore. It's this world is broken, this world sucks, and yet God is present. God is working. God is making all things new. I have hope in that, and I'm going to keep praying for that. That is what gives comfort. His promises are true, his resurrection is real, and his desire to transform brokenness is intense. Let him be intense. Don't you want that intensity? Aren't you, aren't you just so done with the complacency? I am. I'm sick of it within myself, and I'm sick of seeing it in the church. I'm, I'm sick of it. When I see the brokenness in our society, in us, in our hearts, I, I cry and I say, Lord Jesus, make things new. I want the intensity that God has for us. He wants to transform us and make us into a generation of life-changing witnesses for his son. But we can't do that if we're just sitting still playing video games, just wanting to numb ourselves. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? I want to share a beautiful testimony from a fellow Christian woman, Jackie Hill Perry. Maybe some of you recognize her name. She wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God. She is a Christian woman who has gone through the transformation of God's grace. And I want to share a little summary of her testimony. Jackie was head over heels in love with her girlfriend, and she was far from God. One random night, she was overcome with this conviction that her sin would be the death of her. And not just one sin of homosexuality, but all of her sins. And this was a very unwelcome conviction for her, one that she didn't want to consider. She loved her girlfriend too much. But if the conviction were true, and if it were really from God, she knew that he would ask her to lay her entire life down, including that relationship. But along with that conviction also came this truth, that God loves her deeply. More deeply than she could ever love anybody in her entire life. And in that moment, the conviction sounded more like God calling her to be straight than anything else, but that was not true. God wasn't interested in just part of her. He was interested in all of her. 
She was starting to see that all of her sin, with full clarity, would indeed bring about that conviction that it would be the death of her. Her eyes were opened, and she saw reality for what it was. And so she began the hard journey of breaking up with her girlfriend because she saw that Jesus was so much better than anything she could ever have or want. And she wanted Jesus more than her sin, more than anything that the sinful world, her flesh, could offer her. And she knew she had to start with this relationship. And so after that pivotal night, she began that painful work of breaking up with her beloved girlfriend the tears were very loud, the heartbreak very intense, but through that tear-broken voice, she says, and I quote, I gotta live for God now. Congratulations to those who are grieved by sin, because God, in his grace, has also wept over sin, and he's nailed it to the cross. Thank you for listening today. Boise Bible College exists to raise up leaders for the church, where we value scholarship, humility, innovation, and community. For more information about Boise Bible College, please see boisebible.edu.